Well, C.S. Lewis once wrote that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. His words ring really true today. Uh, You can see it really anywhere you look on social media, in the Christian bookstore. Um, It seems to be one of two extremes. But fortunately for us, Paul, uh, in this passage, maintains a very healthy balance between between the two that we can use not only as a corrective, but I hope that we'll use it as a guide as well as we continue to strive to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So if you would, let's stand together in the honor of God's Word. Uh, Daniel has already read the full passage that we're going to look at tonight, 10 through 20. I just simply want to read verses 10 and 11 to kind of bring us back to the passage uh, that he read for us. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we would ask that in these moments that you would bless us, again, that you would fill us by your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to ear the truth of your word. Bless us now. Bend our wills to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Verse 10 begins, um, really, it it almost could feel like a very innocuous word, but it's the word finally. And we could look at that and, and we could think that Paul is using it simply to wrap up his letter, but the reality is he's using it Uh, for quite a bit more. He's using it not only to say he's coming to the conclusion, but he's using it to say that everything that I'm about to say is connected to everything that I've said prior. He's making sure that, that this is taken as a whole, that this isn't just lopped off at the end as if he's starting a new thought, because he is and he isn't. He is now going to begin to speak about spiritual warfare, but it is so connected to and important to that call that he has been sharing with us since chapter 4 of, as I've already said, walking in a manner worthy of the call of the Lord Jesus. And so he's going to explain in these 10 verses how we can stand firm in the midst of a battle that is raging. And we're going to find out and we're going to learn as we go. And really by the end we will see that he's really telling us to do and to stand firm in what he shared in chapters 1 to 3. He's not straying from that declaration of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to find that standing firm is really nothing more and nothing less than remembering, trusting in, and resting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look first. We're going to look at two things. The nature of the battle as well as our... um, Uh, Or actually, yeah, our nature of the battle and our defense in the midst of that battle. So two things, uh, the nature of the battle and our defense in the midst of that battle. And that 
uh, the nature of the battle can be broken down into three things. Paul looks at the battlefield, he looks at our enemy, and he looks at the enemy's strategy. Let's look first at verse 12 at the battlefield. Paul says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul is doing much more than giving, or giving Frank Peretti a catchy book title. He's, he's moved beyond that, and he's drawing our attention to the fact that we are in the midst of a battle. There is a spiritual war going on, and we are in the middle of it. Specifically, he's saying that in the midst of life, that we're living on this physical level, on this earthly level, there are spiritual realities going on or taking place as that happens. There is something going on on a spiritual level taking place in the day-to-day. And Paul is calling us to be aware of that spiritual reality. He's asking us to maintain the distinction between the two, and he's asking us as well to be aware of the reality and the gravity of the situation. And this is very important because it allows us to, one, to uh, identify our enemy appropriately as well as uh, engage him appropriately. And this is very, very practical. Why it's, it's associated with or linked to everything that's gone before. Uh, Paul has just completed uh, from chapter 4, the beginning of 4 through the uh, first part of 6, talking about how we are to walk in that manner worthy of our calling and what that looks like in the church, in the home, in the marriage, among our children, and also at work. He's described how we are to live in those relationships Uh, The relationships that we have with one another, the relationships that you have as husband and wife, the relationships that you have with parents and children, the relationship as Aaron wonderfully uh, shared with us last week, those relationships in the workplace. And really in any relationship that we find ourselves where authority is a part of that. And he's following that up specifically with a description of a spiritual battle. It's not by accident. He knows that, well, yes, there, are, there is a spiritual battle going on and is playing out politically and socioeconomically and, and culturally uh, in areas like abortion, um, in areas like racism and poverty and sexual identity and abuse. And we see this uh, going on and it's, it's really being played out in social media. And so it's right there in our face. But Paul is pointing out that while this is, is predominant, Paul is stressing that this battle takes place really more significantly and profoundly within our churches and within our homes and within the marketplace. He doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that this is happening on a day-to-day basis. And he's cautioning us to look beyond the physical and, and look beyond who's standing right in front of us to see and recognize those realities that are going on behind the scenes, much like Jesus did when confronted by Peter. Right? Peter says, oh, you know, Jesus is speaking of going to the cross, and Peter says, oh, may it never be, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? He's seeing beyond what's going on on the spiritual level, understanding that, that there are powers at work that want to thwart Christ and His work. 
And that's what Paul is calling us to do. He's calling us to be aware of that which is lurking behind the scenes. He wants us to see that there are and to understand that there are spiritual forces at work that are trying to wreak havoc and chaos in the midst of uh, the relationships that we have on a day to day basis. And those institutions that are so fundamental and foundational in our culture and society, specifically the church and the home. We need to be cognizant of evil forces that are behind the scenes in in certain ideologies and and in uh, the political realm and and religions and false teachers. But Paul doesn't want us to be fooled into thinking that it doesn't take place and those same forces aren't at work in the more personal and intimate relationships that happen on a day-to-day basis. And I think that realization and that awareness is important for three reasons. First, I think it helps us to not under, underestimate the gravity of the situation. To not overlook the importance and to, not, to, to overlook the fact that damage, severe damage could be done if we ignore it. Secondly, I think it's also important because it helps us to avoid treating each other crudely and cruelly and with disdain. It helps us to avoid those slanderous conversations or the condescending language or that which inflames situations because, listen, people are not our enemies. Listen, I am not your enemy. Look beside you. They are not your enemy. Look down the aisle. Within the church, they're not your enemy. At home, wives, your husbands are not the enemy. Husbands, your wives are not the enemy. Parents, your children are not the enemies. Children, listen, your parents are not the enemy. Bosses are not the enemy. Employees are not the enemy. People in general are not the enemy. And it doesn't matter. It it can be the vilest sinner, the most egregious offender, the most blatant mocker, the most deceptive false teacher. They are not the enemy. Remember Paul's words in chapter 2. Those folks on those levels and that vilest of offender... They are simply dead, in, as we once were, dead in their trespasses and sins. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the air, who is the enemy of their souls. Which leads us to the third reason this is important. It helps us keep God's plan of uniting everything under Christ in perspective and helps us understand and remember our role in that evangelistically. To look at others who are in that place of needing salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. So if people aren't the enemy, the natural question is, well, who's our enemy? Paul, we've read it, we know. Our enemy is, Paul says, the devil. In verses 10 to 12, he identifies him. He says the devil and, of course, his minions he, he labels as rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul calls him the devil. We know him as Satan. He's described throughout Scripture in many different ways. Evil, personified, a tempter, a deceiver, a liar, an oppressor, a perverter of truth, and an imitator, specifically of an angel of light. But we have to, again, remembering Mr. Lewis's statement, we have to keep these things in perspective. All that is true. And yet, as as strong and as fierce as a foe he might be, Scripture tells us that he's limited. 
He's limited. Job tells us that he only functions within the parameters that God sets. The rest of Scripture tells us that he's not self-existent. He isn't sovereign. He's not omniscient. He's not uh, omnipotent. And he's not uh, omnipresent. Which is why he needs all those spiritual forces and powers of evil. Because he can't be in all places at all time. But most important... Scripture is very clear. We learn in Colossians chapter 2 that Christ has already disarmed those rulers and powers and principalities. And He's done so through the cross. And we know from earlier in Ephesians that not only has He disarmed those rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, but we also know that He has defeated and bound Satan through that same cross. If you remember back in verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul says it's, again, as I've already mentioned, God's plan to put everything under the feet of Christ and His subjection. He wants to unite all things in Him, things on heaven and earth. And verses 21 and 22 of later on in that chapter, he says that he did that through the cross. He defeated Satan and having been raised from the dead, that he ascended and he was seated at the right hand of God and in the heavenly places far above what? Do you remember? All rulers and authority and powers and dominion. Same language. Same language is here in chapter 6. From that point forward, Paul says that it's through the gospel that God continues to rescue people who, as I already mentioned in chapter 2, verse 2, right, that are under uh, Satan's authority, who are lost and dead in their trespasses and sins, And and God is taking them through the gospel and He is saving them, rescuing them, and seating them with Christ in the heavenly places. Again, similar language. And then He goes on to say in chapter 10 of, or verse 10 of chapter 3, that the church, it's as if we are this trophy putting that victory on display. And who are we on display in front of? He says, in front of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, our enemy and his minions have been defeated and we are on display in victory in front of those that he has defeated where they can see. They know of their defeat. And you can imagine they're not happy about it. They're not happy about it. And of course, we have to ask ourselves, well, why would, why would Paul, if he's been defeated, he's bound, why would Paul say we have to uh, watch out and that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle if he's already been defeated? And the answer to that is, the best way I know to put it, is that Satan is like a mobster boss, right? He's been, he's been put in jail. And as we see on TV, that mob, mobster boss, he may be in prison and, and he's been thwarted and he can't do all that he used to do. Uh, he's still able to work in ways that uh, to, to kind of do his business. And, and we see Christ having defeated Satan. Uh, Satan has been bound. He's been defeated. And Christ is, in his own words, in Mark chapter 3, plundering the house of the strong man. Satan continues to work. He's not able to deceive the nations. He's not to bring about this worldwide struggle or or force against the church. 
but he remains active and he's operating on a limited basis to thwart God's plan. So despite being defeated and bound, he continues to work and he remains shrewd, he remains cunning, he remains devious. And his strategy is very, very effective because it's subtle. It's subtle in that he, he, he uses lies and deception and accusations and enticement and the creation of doubt. And I want to run through a few of those, not that I have this exhaustive list, but things to, to maybe allow us to think a little bit. Again, to look beyond what's present in front of us, to, to identify those things that are going on spiritually behind the scenes. We know our enemy lies about God. In some cases, he's going to cause or he's going to lie about his existence. But in in most cases, he does what he did in the garden. He causes or he lies about God's trustworthiness. He lies and says that God withholds that which is good. Uh, He lies uh, about the fact that we have to disobey to actually uh, actually do what it is that we should. I mean, it's so contradictory. He lies that God withholds that which is good. He lies and says that his favorite, I think one of his favorite is that God is some cosmic killjoy and he's constantly and forever uh, angry and never satisfied. Of course, he's constantly lying and telling us that our love is based upon, or his love of us is based upon performance. He lies about uh, our sin. He says it's not that big of a deal. It's, if it's not hurting anybody, why worry about it? It's not as offensive as long as it's not hurting anybody. And it can't be all that bad. He'll, he'll even go to lengths to redefine it. He'll, he'll try to get us to believe that it's only behavioral and it doesn't affect us to our very core and that it doesn't affect our, our volition or our, our thinking or our emotions. And he definitely, most definitely, just again, as in the garden, he definitely wants to question whether there's a judgment or not. Actually, he just wants us to dismiss any possibility of judgment. And he does that by lying and saying that God is only gracious and loving and leaving out that he's also holy and just. He also lies about where our identity comes from, where our satisfaction lies. We heard it in our study of of Ecclesiastes, right? We look for our satisfaction in the world. We look for our satisfaction and our identity in in others and in our spouses and how we parent and in our jobs and in some type of performance. But he also accuses us. He accuses us by convincing us or trying to convince us that because we sin, we're unacceptable, unlovable failures. And he wants us to to just live in that condemnation. He wants us to live in that guilt and to wallow in self-pity. He also entices us and he tempts us. He fuels the fire of discontent. Right? He... He paints this picture and, and tries to get us to believe that we're better off with anything other than what we have. He paints this mirage that, that really everything, or, or the grass is always greener. 
anywhere than where we are and with anyone other than who we're with. And he does that within the church, in our homes. He's always whispering in our ear, oh, it's okay, nobody will know. He whispers in our ears, ears things like, well, you, you deserve that. You work hard. She doesn't appreciate you. He takes advantage of you. Oh, your parents just don't understand. Your church doesn't love you. You can all do better. And then he creates doubt as well. He causes us to ask, did God really say that? Again, a garden. Did God really say that? Is that really what God meant? Will God really keep his promises? Are you sure your spouse is faithful? Are you sure your parents care about you? Are you, are you really sure that's the church you need to be a part of? And the bottom line is, in the words of my friend Ted Wenger, he says, ultimately Satan's goal is for us to live and act in a way that is contrary to who we are and what is ours in Christ. He wants us to doubt who we are in Him and our ability to put sin to death and to live under righteousness. So let me ask you tonight... Where do you fall in that? Where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself living in a way and acting in a way contrary to who you are in Christ? Do you find yourself as having fallen prey to the enemy? Do you find yourself believing the lies that he tells? What lies are you believing? What accusations are you listening to? What temptations have you given into? And what doubt are you entertaining? Do you find yourself living contrary to who you are? And are you doubting? Are you doubting your ability to put sin to death and to live unto righteousness? Are you doubting that you have been made new in Christ? And that the chains of sin have been broken? And that they will not be put back on? We all do it, don't we? Every single one of us do it. At some point in time, throughout the week, we find ourselves in one of those categories, believing the lies, falling under, under the temptation, and, and listening to the accusations and the doubt. And, and that is why Paul is so clear and specific about the nature of our defense. That's why he says, here's how you combat the enemy. And it's twofold. He talks about the nature of our posture, or the nature of our stance, or the, the right posture and the right armor. The right posture and the right armor. And the posture is actually twofold. First look at verse 10 again. If you go back, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Strong in the Lord, the strength of His might. So the first, the first part of this posture is submission. 
You and I must, in the midst of this battle, we must submit. If we're going to properly defend ourselves and against the enemy and those lies and accusations and, and doubts that he throws our way and those temptations, we need to believe that the outcome of the battle has been settled and that it is God who has gone to battle on our behalf and continues to do so. The outcome of the battle is dependent upon him. It's not a matter of how well you or I bind our enemy. As a matter of fact, we're never told to do that anywhere. We're to rest in the Lord. It's also not a matter of how many spiritual disciplines that we embrace and practice or how well and how often we practice them. Hang on, I'm going to explain that in just a minute. It's a matter of submission. It's a matter of petitioning God for grace and for faith and the strength to remain confident in Christ and His work on our behalf. It's our dependence on the one who is in control and not on us. It's about trusting and resting in the resurrection and ascension of Christ it's about trusting and resting in the power that Paul has already said is working in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's His Spirit that is work, at work within us. And we submit ourselves and acknowledge our weakness. And it's in our weakness that He is strong. But it begins with submission. And then it moves to a stance. The posture is about a stance. Look at 11 through 14. As you read through that, he, he uses the word struggle. And it's a word that describes a, a grappling or a wrestling. And so he's really describing this hand-to-hand -hand combat. And, and why that the Roman centurion armor works. Because that armor uh, really involves, particularly with the uh, size of the sword, the hand-to-hand -hand combat that he's really talking about in this case. But he's painting, painting a picture um, that helps us understand that, and, and why, explains why he uses the word stand, withstand, and stand firm four times in these verses. I had a dear, dear friend in Colorado, he, a friend, um, a fellow elder, and he is in the uh, wrestling, National Wrestling Hall of Fame for being uh, an outstanding high school wrestling coach. And one time we were talking about wrestling, and I remember he said this. He said, the most important skill a wrestler can possess is the ability to establish position. He said, a good wrestler will not give up position in order to make some move. And he says that the only way that a wrestler can actually withstand his opponent and, and, and him coming at him is, is a stance. And he went on to do, kind of show me a couple of stances and, and how important that they were in the midst of that wrestling. For you and I, you know as well as I do that our stance and our position in this battle is one that is firmly established in the Word of God. Firmly established in the Word of God. We're defenseless without God's Word because it's the teaching and preaching of God's Word that brings us to salvation. It's the preaching and teaching of God's Word that sanctifies us. It's the preaching and teaching of God's Word that leads us to a place of glorification. And of course, we know Jesus, of course, is a perfect example of taking that stand in the midst of temptation, taking that stand in the Word of God. Matthew chapter 4, when Satan comes at him and is misquoting Scripture, what, is, what does Jesus do? He quotes Scripture rightly. 
And as he withstands, what does Satan do? Satan flees and does exactly what James says he will do in chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee. So we have submission and we have a stance. But he goes from a posture to the right armor. There's armor that we are to put on in verses 14 to 17. And I, and I want to go back to a statement that I made earlier. I, I want to explain and, and help, uh, help us briefly to understand that Paul is not urging us in any way to display some kind of virtuous action or calling us in some way to practice a certain number of spiritual disciplines or to practice them in a certain way or more often or emphatically as if that would ensure our protection. Don't misunderstand because we do benefit from practicing, exercising the spiritual disciplines. It's good to read the Word of God and to pray. And we need, of course, we need to strive, as I've already said, strive to put sin to death and to live into righteousness. We've been talking about that for the last three chapters. But please, please know, our trust, we, we should not trust in our practice of those disciplines or in our ability for our success in the midst of this battle. Actually, when we start to trust in ourselves, it's the beginning of our demise. As one commentator put it, if we begin to believe that our spiritual protection rests on our degree of spiritual discipline, then our virtues become tools of unbelief in which we deny the need of grace and assert the rule of self. We do not put on the armor of God by trusting in the more vigorous performance of our duties, but by relying on God's provision for our protection. We do not trust in ourselves, in in our ability, or in anything that we do. We trust in Christ. And Paul says we do that by taking up and putting on the armor of God. Of God, and, and again, I, I, I spoke with the children that, that we use these examples, and we have in Vacation Bible School, and I grew up learning them, and they're good, and they help us. And if you do a little bit of study of, of that Roman armor, uh, there, there's really some neat correlations there, and that you can build upon. Um, but Paul's imagery is actually of that warrior servant in Isaiah. He's pointing us to the Lord Jesus. And what he's doing is he's pointing us to rest in his provision and in his protection, both that he has worn and that he has uh, successfully secured on our behalf. We're pointed to him and what he has done. It's because Jesus is more than just an example. And I just used him as an example in Matthew chapter four, but he's so much more than an example. Because what did he do? He, he withstood and overcame that temptation of Satan in the garden. And he did that for you and for me. He saw beyond Peter to see Satan trying to thwart him going to the cross. He said, get behind me, Satan. And he did that for you and for me. I believe that there was a struggle. I believe Satan was probably present in the garden of Gethsemane due to the wrestling that was going on with Christ. And what did he do? He overcame that. He submitted to the will of the Father for you 
and for me. There had to be spiritual realities working behind the scenes as the people walked past Christ on the cross and mocked Him and told Him, Hey, if you can come down, come down. And He didn't do it. For you and for me. He did everything that we cannot do for ourselves. He, we, we, we rest in His payment for our sins, but we also rest in His work of overcoming temptation on our behalf as well. And so we ask, well, how do we put it on? How do we put on this armor? If this is about what Christ has done and this is His armor and that it's, it's what He wore and it's what He secured for us, what does that look like? Well, simply put, we rest in the gospel. We wear the belt of truth when we remember and trust in and rest in the objective truth of the gospel. The Lord Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried He rose again according to the scriptures for your sin, for my sin, on the behalf of sinners. And we trust in the fact that he lived righteously for us. Isaiah 59, he wore that that belt of righteousness, or that breastplate of righteousness. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 11, he talks about wearing a belt of truth, uh, righteousness, and faithfulness. He did that for you. We, We wear the belt of truth when we trust in. That objective truth of the gospel. We wear the breastplate of righteousness when we trust in Christ's righteousness for us. Not in our practical righteousness, but in His righteousness. We trust in His righteousness for our position. Casting away any doubt that we are His. Right? Because we're not trusting in what we can do. We're trusting in what He has done. When we face those doubts, when we begin to question, we we, we have that breastplate of righteousness, I am in Christ. It is what He has done for me, not in what I do for myself. We wear the shoes of peace when we rest in the peace of Christ, when we we understand that as we learned earlier in Ephesians, we were separated from Him. We were at odds with We were enemies with Him. And what has He done? He's break, broken down that dividing wall. We are now in Christ. So we are reconciled to, to the Lord. And we are reconciled with one another. We wear the, the shoes of peace. And we take up the shield of faith. When we take up the shield of faith. When we, when we take up the fact that we believe and trust in. That we are saved by faith alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And when those accusations begin to fly, we don't look to anyone else. We don't trust in anyone else. We don't believe in anything else. But we look and we just say, all I have is Christ, as we sang earlier. And those arrows that come at us are absorbed. And then we take up the sword, or the helmet of salvation, when we remember and trust and rest in that surety of our salvation that's been secured and, and fully and finally and completely in Christ. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority. As, as we sang. What can they do to us bodily? And of course we take up the sword of the spirit when we remember the truth of God's word as we've already mentioned. But also when we proclaim that word to ourselves and to others. Taking, taking that sword and defending ourselves and using it precisely as the need arises. Again, do we need to practice those spiritual disciplines? Do we need to be involved in Bible study? Is scripture memory good? Absolutely, because we use it. 
But our success in this battle is, is not dependent on how good we do that. So we need to admit that putting it on, don't we? We need to admit that putting it on and taking it up is a little easier said than done. Or is that just me? It's a little easier said than done. And with so much available to us, we still struggle to stand firm. With so much at our disposal, we we continue to fall prey to the lies and the accusations and the doubt. And it's not that our enemy is too strong. And it's not that the power within us is too weak. What do we do? We constantly fall back into the patterns and the rhythms and the beliefs that we can do it by ourselves. We're going to do it on our own. We can't give up that idea. But over and over through this study, we we can't do that. We cannot do it. We can't do it in our own strength and in our own might. And we can't do it alone. And so that's why Paul concludes this way. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Very quickly, he said, Paul says we need to be praying for each other. We need to be praying for each other. Uh, On a regular and ongoing basis, we need to be praying for each other publicly, privately, briefly, or even in the long prayer that's coming, children, right? But we need to be doing that. We need to be involving ourselves in prayer. We need to be praying silently or out loud, relying on the Spirit and God's will and, and purpose, all the while trusting in the Spirit to intercede on our behalf. But we need to be praying. And He doesn't give us an exact prayer I think he leaves that open, of course, as he has in many cases throughout this letter. He's, he's failed to be real specific on how this works out, to leave that up for us, right? But again, in context, in context, I think in light of the importance of the battle, I think Paul's prayer in chapter 3 is not only appropriate, but perfect. Do you remember that prayer? Three petitions. One, he prayed for their sanctification. He prayed that they would grow in Christ and that he would become the center of their affections and their desires and their convictions and actions. And he prayed that that would would happen by the power of his spirit that is working within them. And he he said to pray for that sanctification and that we weren't going to be able to do it on our own and to trust in the spirit, but that was going to take us praying for one another. And then he moved to the second petition, which was what? To pray for the, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love, that we would know the love of Christ. He prayed that we would know the breadth or how accepting that love of Christ is because we need to remember that no matter who we are or what we've done, no matter who we are, no one is out of his reach. We needed to, he wanted us to understand the length or how lasting the love of Christ is. We need to know that He has loved us from eternity past to eternity future. It never ends. He wanted us to know the, the height of His love or how exalting His love is. And I've already said it, His love that sent Christ to the cross. And now, where, where are we? We are seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, experiencing every blessing in the heavenly places. 
And then he wanted us to know the depth or how sacrificial his love is. There's no sin that outlasts or out... His love covers it all. You can't outsin. This is what I meant to say. You cannot outsin the love of God. In Christ Jesus, who went to the cross for you and for me. And his last petition was that Christ would become preeminent. All things. In all things. Over all things. First in all things. And I, there are other ways we can pray for one another. And we should pray for one another. But that's a great place to start. A great place to start. When we, when we consider the importance of the reality of the spiritual battle. The, the reality of the spiritual forces that are behind the scenes. When we, when we desire to stand firm. Rather than trying to stand firm in our own power. What do we do? We, we go, go to. I just thought of this. I probably shouldn't say it because I just now thought of it, but I will. We need to go to the mat for one another. To stay within that wrestling analogy. And as we do, we will stand firm. We'll stand firm. We'll reject the lies of the enemy and his strategy. We'll resist him and remember James and what happened with Jesus. He will flee. He will. Let's pray together.